My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Well, welcome uh, as we go through the Bible again today together. And I'm just so thankful for you coming on this journey with me. And I hope this is uh, really helpful for you. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to check out all my playlists on YouTube, please go ahead and do that. You can see all of the chapters of books of the Bible that I've done. And uh, hopefully they're an encouragement to you and an inspiration and a challenge. Uh, and I pray that uh, they would help you on your journey of life. We're continuing today on the second half of Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20 is where we're going to start today. And uh, this is, again, lots of pivot points in the book of Proverbs. You know, Solomon's talking to his son about one thing, and then five seconds later, he's talking to him about something else. He's like, okay, we've finished talking about that. Now we're going to talk about this. And uh, you can imagine his son just attentively listening. Yes, yes, Dad, you know. Uh, and so here we go into verse 20, and he says, My son, keep your father's command. Do not forsake the law of your mother. I mean, you know, there's some big stuff coming when you start off a sentence like that, you know, uh, and uh, th- that's what he's about to do. Um, uh, bind them continually upon your heart, tie them around your neck. Solomon probably had in mind both the wisdom of his own father, David, uh, who passed on to, to him his his wisdom, and also how David passed on to him the word of God, and that was cherished by him, and now he's encouraging his son to cherish it because a wise child will keep God's word close upon their heart and around their neck. Bruce Waltke on the words bind them. Here it pictures him memorizing them in such a way that they are permanently impressed on his essential mental and spiritual being that prompts his every action. Alan P. Ross. Implicit in these verses is the basic understanding that a good home life, father and mother sharing the rearing of the children together, will go a long way to prevent the youth from falling into immorality. Now, I know that a lot of people don't have that opportunity to raise children uh, in in homes with both parents. It's, it's almost becoming rarer these days, you know, and that was my, my experience. I was not raised with a mother in the home. I was raised with my dad and my brother, three men. You can imagine what that home's like, three men. Um, and, and so I know that, you know, I, I know that so far I haven't fallen into immorality. So, so just because you don't have you know, both parents doesn't mean you can't. I think the point here from Solomon is that if you've got instruction from both the mother and father throughout the length of your days and they're involved in wisdom being transferred and learnt and instructed, uh, then this is what you can expect out of that. Verse 22. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. When you wake, they will speak with you. The word of God is living and active we know that it's it's not just a book, it's not just words on a page. When it, when it's when it's cherished by us, when it's kept close to us, uh, then all of a sudden we start living uh, from its power that it has. It's going to lead us. It's going to keep us. It's going to speak to us. And and if you want God to lead, keep, and speak to you, then you have to be in His Word. And Proverbs. 6.22 here presents God's word as a person who helps in many ways, uh, a guide that will lead you, a guide that will keep, a guardian that will keep you, a companion who will speak to you. Uh, Spurgeon said this, 
The Bible is a wonderful talking book. There is a great mass of blessed talk in this precious volume. It has told me a great many of my faults. It would tell you yours if you would let it. It has told me much to comfort me. It has much to tell you if you will but incline your ear to it. It is a book that is wonderfully communicative. It knows all about you, all the ins and the outs of where you are and where you ought to be. It can tell you everything. Yes, that's the word of God. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. To keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Solomon actually then quotes, well, he seems to quote Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Uh, when we give the proper attention and, uh, and, and value to God's word, when we do that, uh, God's word brings light in our darkness. And here he says it will keep you from the evil woman. Here Solomon spoke to a specific place where wisdom from God's word can help you. God's word and wisdom will never lead us to the evil woman or keep us with her. The light of God's word is going to wisely keep us from her and speak to us better than what her flattering words are going to speak to us. Now, uh, understand, again, this is he's talking to his son. So, of course, it makes sense that he's saying, you know, to, to talk about a woman. Uh, he could have easily said to a man if he was talking to a daughter. But that's not what we have in the Bible. This is what we have. Verse 25, do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. Solomon says, uh, yeah, I get it. I get it that she's beautiful. I get that you, you know, she might appear like, you know, somebody that you want to have a relationship and a, an intimate relationship with. Um, but wisdom and the word of God can prevent you from being mastered by the desire, uh, the beauty of, of, of her allure of her physicality. John Trapp, it's small praise to have a good face and a naughty nature, a beautiful countenance and a base, empty life. Um, don't let her allure you. In Solomon's day, allure normally took place in a personal encounter. Uh, but in the modern world we live in, man, there's images everywhere that are alluring. Uh, just, you know, unfortunately, our phones are full of them. Wisdom and the word help us see things uh, that are alluring images for what they really are, which is their lies. And they don't tell the truth about sex, relationships, human nature. They're just lies. Bruce Waltke, the parallelism between do not covet her beauty and do not let her capture you with her eyes suggests that coveting begins by allowing eye contact. Desiring becomes into his, desiring comes into his heart through optical stimulation aroused by her beauty and more specifically by the pupils of her eyes followed by her sweet talk. And that is so true. Uh, that's why what men, what you look at, you, you know, uh, th there's lots of, um, instruction in, in books about men's purity to bounce your eyes. You know, if you're looking across something and you see something, you know, well, don't look at that. Nope. Nope. Don't look at that. Looking over there. Nope. Bounce. And you have to do that because it works. Uh, Alan P. Ross, eyes are singled out here because the painted eyes and the luring glances are symptoms of seduction. Verse 26. 
For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. With her, with her beauty and allure, this is the difference between a harlot and an adulteress, and a prostitute and, and somebody who's already married and just wants to cheat with another man. Okay. The, the harlot uses, the prostitute uses her beauty and allure and promises to add something to the life of her customer. She's like, I can give you something you can't get. And she promises excitement, pleasure, attention, and a whole lot of things. Um, but she can't deliver on any of those promises. All she can do is take away, um, and not give anything back. But an adulteress preys upon the, his whole life. Um, Dwayne Garrett, this statement is obviously not meant to endorse going to a prostitute as opposed to having an affair with another man's wife, but to show the complete folly of getting involved with another man's wife. Uh, verse 27. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. Solomon's wisdom is brilliant in its clarity and simplicity, David Guzik says. To take up with the harlot or the adulteress is to play with fire. And if you play with fire, you're going to get burned. Uh, and he and he warns, whoever touches her, you won't be innocent. You're going to be burned and you're going to be guilty. Okay? Um it, it, Charles Bridges, it's no good for such a man to later on complain about the strength of t- temptation. Why did he not just avoid it? Why did he not just bounce his eyes? Okay, verse 30. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. This is interesting. Um, yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. And you might wonder, where's Solomon going with this? Solomon considered how we in some way, uh, if if somebody was stealing bread for us, we, we'd excuse that person. We'd be like, look, okay, I understand. I wish you had asked. Uh, I would have given you the bread. Um, but even though, you know, you know, you should not have broken into our house. So, you know, there has to be justice done here and you have to restore what was stolen because I would have happily given it to you, but you, you've you stolen. Um, the adulterer steals, but not out of necessity and in such a way where true restitution is actually impossible. It, 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 just, it just can't happen. Um Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. So he's going on here and he's saying, listen, um, you have to understand what needs to be restored here. David Guzik, though Solomon contrasted theft and adultery, there is an interesting link between them. Sexual immorality and adultery are both like stealing. When we have sex with anyone other than our appointed partner in the covenant of marriage, we're stealing something from our spouse, both present or future. Uh, so if you're single... Uh, we're also stealing from our illicit sexual partner and from the present or future spouse of our illicit sexual partner. Paul conform, confirmed this likeness in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where he wrote that to commit sexual immorality is to take advantage of and to defraud our brother. Verse 32, uh, he who commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. To commit adultery, this is a big deal. To commit adultery uh, and sexual sin in general is not just a sin against God and others, but it's also against your own soul, your own body. First Corinthians chapter six. We 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 often think that 
The penalty for sexual immorality comes if the sin is exposed uh, and if it becomes known. But wisdom and God's word tells us that it's going to destroy your soul, whether it becomes known or not. You might go to the grave and nobody ever found out about it, but your soul will have been destroyed. Um, and, and he says here, you know, uh, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. Think about this. King David was a brilliant strategist on the battlefield. He, he was an incredibly wise ruler on the throne, but he lost all his common sense when he gazed at his neighbor's wife and lusted after her. Uh, he lacked understanding. Um, now, we have to note that the blame here is on the adulterer. He may blame the tentress. He may blame his wife. Well, my wife doesn't do this, and my wife, you know, whatever. He may blame his lusts. He may blame his desires, his circumstances. He may even blame God. He may blame the devil. But at the end of it, he destroys his own soul. That's what the Bible says, verse 33. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased through you, though you give many gifts. In addition to the ways that sexual immorality brings harm, it will also bring disgrace when it's discovered. Uh, a jealous husband will often not spare in the day of vengeance and will not be appeased in his anger. Uh, you know, that's, I, I, I think we all understand that. Uh, what that, what the Bible's trying to tell you here. His reproach shall not be wiped away. Although it will be forgiven by God, yet the reproach and the scandal of it will remain. Matthew Poole. Adam Clark. Accept no recompense. This is an injury that emits no, uh, no compensation. No gifts can satisfy a man for the injury his honor has sustained. And to take a bribe or a ransom would be setting up chastity at a price. In other words, if you could pay off a, a a married man you uh because you slept with his wife then you've just made her a prostitute um wounds and dishonor he will get sexual immorality offers um uh pleasure excitement sometimes romance um but even if it delivers on those things it brings wounds and it brings dishonor and it wounds your own body and your own soul. It dishonors you. It dishonors your family, your, the congregation of friends that you have, your community. Charles Bridges, you are wounded, but not like a soldier or a Christian martyr. He is not full of honor, but of disgrace, and his name is full of shame. Derek Kidner, the picture of the adulterer as a social outcast may seem greatly overdrawn. If so, the adjustment that must be made is to say that in any healthy society, such an act is social suicide. Condonation, and I'll speak to what that is in a second. Condonation, as distinct from forgiveness, only proves the adulterer to be part of a general decadence. Now, what does that mean? That means we must forgive but never condone. If somebody has, uh, you know, been involved in in uh, an inappropriate sexual relationship, we we, we have to forgive, um, but we can never condone. We're not we're not allowed to condone, and, and that brings me to my observation for today. Because if this is you, and and you have you you're you're, you're reading this, going, yep, I've done that. Um, 
then you are, if you ask Jesus for forgiveness and your heavenly father for forgiveness through the power of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, uh, then you are truly set free because whom the son sets free is free indeed. Um, and those you have asked for forgiveness from must forgive you. Um, Matthew 6.15. Um, it, it, it's straight after the Lord's Prayer is uh, if you forgive your brother or sister, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive your brother or sister, your heavenly father will neither forgive you. Um, so forgiveness is a part of this process for those who are on the other side of it, um, but can never be condoned. And and Solomon's point here is to his son in this second half of of, of chapter 6 is please understand, please understand that it doesn't matter um, what you think in the moment. It will never be worth it in the long run. And uh, this is the wisdom that he's trying to teach his son. And that's what we have to observe out of this is that we have a, we have a generational obligation here. Uh, grandparents have an obligation. Maybe, maybe your children aren't teaching their children. So maybe you've got to stand in the gap and say, Hey, listen, I've got to teach you because your parents aren't doing it. Uh, but we have an obligation to generationally transfer this wisdom from Solomon, uh, to the next generation that we are responsible and accountable for. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Allow this to sink in, inspire, encourage, equip, and challenge us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.